Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sega. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. This episode is also brought to you by Brave, the new web browser by the inventor of JavaScript. When was the last time you seriously thought about your browser? Many of us downloaded Chrome without even thinking about it, but it's time to upgrade to something way faster, totally private, that actually pays you for browsing. That's why Brave is the new browser that everyone is switching to. Brave is three times faster than Chrome because it takes Chrome's engine and rips out all of Google's spyware while blocking ads and trackers right out of the box. YouTube ads too. So it works just like Chrome, except it's lighter and faster. Here's the cool part. If you choose to enable ads that you control, Brave actually pays you for any ad that you happen to see. You can then take your earnings and cash them out, tip them to your favorite websites and creators, or redeem rewards. It's like Air Miles, but just for browsing the web as you usually do. No other browser does this, and no other browser pays you. And no, Brave doesn't collect your data and sell it. It keeps everything local to your device. Brave is still a bit of an industry secret among lead tech users and privacy advocates, despite growing to over 22 million users in a very short period of time. You can be ahead of the curve, too. It's still early. Switching to Brave is super easy and quick. It lets you import your bookmarks, history, and replicate your entire workspace in less than 60 seconds. It's free, and all your Chrome extensions work in Brave, too. So listeners of the podcast, switch to Brave today. You can go to brave.com slash likeville and switch now. By downloading and using Brave, you're also helping support the Likeville podcast. Brave is available for your laptop, iOS, and Android. It's time to upgrade to the next generation of browsers with Brave. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today I'm going to be talking with Richard Farron about uh, the coddling of the Trumpian mind uh, in light of recent crazy events um, in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Richard. Uh, hello. Thanks for uh, having me on. So maybe you could just, we could start off by you just sort of uh, telling our listeners uh, who you are, mm-hmm. uh, just so they have an idea of you know, who, who you are. Right. Uh, okay. Uh, well, I am a uh, composer and sound designer uh, from Toronto. Um, who I usually work in live theater, so I've been out of work for quite a quite a while now. Um, and uh, and I make music, and um, occasionally I write <laughs> um, public statements, such as the one that uh, that you shared of mine. Yeah, I I think what was so fascinating to me about uh, your and and for our listeners who want to uh, read the whole um, article, they can find it on the Likeville website um, called "The Coddling of the Trumpian Mind." Uh, what I found so fascinating is that you've you've put your finger on something that is absolutely absolutely central to politics, but it's something that, to the best of my knowledge. You know, lots of people have written on this, um, and nobody really has a, a clear idea. And as far as I see it, it's, so well. Anyway, before I, I say that, about how do you reconcile? How do people come together again mm-hmm. after something terrible 
So after a civil war, after mm-hmm. some sort of like horrible ethnic cleansing or some kind of very violent uh, political uh, dispute or election or something like that, how do you, uh, and this is something that humans have been wrestling with probably since, you know, since the beginning of time. I mean, I, mm-hmm. but I, the earliest records I could find of it when I was preparing for this conversation was if you find ancient Greek sources where they would have, let's say, a, a tyrant would take over in Athens and uh, a lot of people would get involved. And let's say, you know, one third of the citizens of Athens would be either murdered or exiled. Mm. And then there's a, there's a restoration period after that. And then they're just, they're trying to deal with this issue. It's like, what the fuck do you do with like all the people who collaborated, who participated? Mm-hmm. You know, do you just continue the cycle of violence? Do you exile all of them? Do you jail them all? Do, or do you just have uh, like a blanket amnesty? Or do you mm-hmm. have an amnesty that is sort of um, not blanket where you, just, I mean, this is like a really, really, really huge question right yes. so but but anyway before we get into that um maybe you could just sort of summarize what your position is uh for our listeners right uh well i was really just reiterating something that i'd been saying since um trump was first elected um and um you know so it's it's something i've been saying all along but it's certainly given this week's events uh, has taken on um a special urgency um, because, uh, I've often heard from, from people that, oh, we sh- you know, we shouldn't be <clears throat> tarring all these Trump supporters with the same brush, or we should, you know, not be, uh, dismissive, belittling them, uh, that sort of thing. And I understand where the sentiment comes from. Um, just, just to interject, yeah. I gotta say, I am a hundred percent one of those people. <laughs> right, like right. Your post, your post spoke directly. Like I felt like you wrote it directly to me. <laughs> right, because I am exactly. I have been exactly one of those people for the last five years. Anyway, go on. Right, right. Uh, and I'm, I, I'm not saying exactly that that is wrong, but I also feel like we have to draw some lines about um, what we, what we might inadvertently enable by you know, reaching out and listening to, you know, people on the, quote, the other side, unquote. Um, And that we have to be very careful about engaging with people because it can be counterproductive. Um, You know, I sort of, I I, I sort of make a case-by-case assessment when I'm interacting, say, online or uh, in various situations about whether, you know, is this a conversation that's going to be constructive in any way or not? Um, and in, in situations like this, I feel it's important to, um, you know, sometimes you, you should not be respectful. Sometimes you should not be open and in, engaged uh, because it's actually what ends up happening is that you, you end up, legitimizing something that should not be legitimized. Um, and it's sometimes it's, it's hard to tell, but I think in this case, it's become very clear that, um, you know, we, the, the Trump Trump movement is a kind of very dangerous threat 
And I flagged that five years ago and people thought I was being a bit alarmist. You know, I was posting links to, um, you know, Shirer's The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, you know, recommended people read this as a sort of preparatory uh, material. And, and it wasn't very well understood that, you know, that I wasn't overstating things. And now I think I, uh, it's, it's a lot clearer that I was, you know, probably right about that for the most part. Um, but, you know, I would sometimes get pushback from people and, you know, very well-intentioned, um, people that, uh, are like, no, no, you shouldn't, you, sh you know, you, we need to keep this dialogue going. We need to reach out. We need to bridge the gap. Um, and, uh, I would say that this is a situation where that's actually the wrong thing to do and that the gap is there for a good reason and that it's not so much about different viewpoints. It is actually, a, you know, I, I see it as more of a moral, um, a, a moral antithesis um, that whatever reasons people may have originally had for, you know, uh, voting for Trump, say in 2016, that's one thing, but to, after everything that we've witnessed, um, those who would still be supporting him um, have really chosen, uh, to me, I see it as a moral choice. Like they have actually chosen, um, you know, whether they realize it or not, fascism and, um, and is sort of placing themselves in opposition to civilized society. And that's why it's dangerous to kind of um, legitimize uh, any of that by respectfully engaging and kind of dignifying um, what they're saying, which is almost, almost always nonsense um, because it's uh, what it, what you end up doing is actually uh, affirming uh, something that should not be affirmed. Yeah. I, I wonder if you're, I, I wrestle with this issue on a number of different levels, but because <laughs> my wife and I both have, um, have like, plenty of family members who are hardcore Trump supporters mm -hmm. who are just totally down that rabbit hole. And, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, these are people that we love very much and uh, we, we know them to be, um, you know, not all of them, <laughs> but mm -hmm. to the most part, uh, for the most part, these are like uh, really fantastic fathers and mm -hmm. great husbands uh, so great, were many great Nazis, mothers. though, right? Uh, that's no, that's I know, the thing I, you have to I remember. Know, I know, absolutely. It's uh, it's just it's a hard question. It's like, well, what do you mm -hmm. uh, what do you do with with these people, right? It's uh, you can't you. Is there like another way to relate to them where you just like avoid those particular issues, right? Yeah. Do you, um, and it's, that seems like it's, a bad idea to me because you're you're sort of. Avoiding something and is sort of you're still normalizing it by normalizing your relations with them. Uh, I would think. Yeah, it's it's a it's a tough call. I mean, but there's also just the, the sort of the, the practical issue, right? Like, mm -hmm. I feel like um, you know, this is something that uh, you know we were talking about this like when we were messaging back and forth a little mm -hmm. bit. Like, if you look at um, uh, John Ralston Saul, the Canadian philosopher, yes. he um, he wrote his PhD dissertation, which is fantastic, mm -hmm. on uh, Charles de Gaulle and how he dealt with uh, 
um, France after World War II and mm-hmm. how he kind of put France back together again. It's just mm-hmm. fascinating. And then he wrote a novel called uh, The Birds of Prey, which mm-hmm. is uh, is fantastic. And he just, it's a fiction, it's a thinly veiled fictionalized account of what de, what de Gaulle had to deal with after World War II. So he, mm-hmm. he had a situation where um, very few people actually were members of the resistance. Mm-hmm. And he knew that. He knew that, you know, better than pretty much anybody, right? And he knew that um, that you know, lots and, you know, most of the French elite and intelligentsia and the people had either actively collab- collaborated with the Vichy regime or had looked the other way. A lot of them had actually actively uh, pursued the resistance and things like that. But if he wanted to, after World War II, just pursue a like retribution and and, and prioritize social justice and making these people pay for their misdeeds, he calculated that um, if he did that, he would basically chop the head off of uh, France, that he would make recovery pretty much impossible because mm-hmm. all these people who had really important skills and knowledge to run everything from the sewer system in, in Paris to like, he, he, there was just too many of the collaborators to get rid of them. So he basically had to work with them. And not only did he have to work with them, a lot of them very quickly started inventing these mythologies like, oh, I was never, I never collaborated. Yeah. I was always against the Nazis. I was always against the Vichy regime. Then they stepped up their fucking lies. And by the, by the mid fifties, everybody was saying they were a member of the resistance and the people who were actually members of the resistance and you know, the goal, they knew full well that these people were lying, but they had to go along with the lie because they were so outnumbered. Mm-hmm. And it just created this kind of, and, you know, Adenauer dealt with the same thing in West Germany. And, you know, there's so many examples of this. So I, I guess my question is that regardless of whether you think um, people who collaborated with Trump are, you know, morally uh, culpable and stuff like that, I'm wondering when you're talking about, uh, you know, what is it, like 75 million people voted for right. Trump? Uh, when you're talking about basically uh, half the voting electorate, how do you how do you cancel half of a country? Well, I would uh, I would say you know there the most uh, enlightening and useful I think historical parallel to me is uh, post war Germany, which I think. For the most part, um, the Allies dealt with fairly wisely. Um, so, first of all, um, whether or not justice is uh, retributive, uh, it's uh, it is very important that there be consequences for actions. Um, so, at the moment, it's uh, I. You know, I'm not going to hold out too much hope, but there's another push to impeach uh, Donald Trump again. And part of this is just to make sure he doesn't do any more damage. And there's also a, an added bonus of uh, they can vote if they if they successfully convict him, they can vote to prevent him from ever uh, running for pu- from public office again, uh, which I think is actually a, a very good idea. 
Um, but in, you know, in various ways and whatever other prosecutions may arise uh, subsequently, it's very important that the people who are responsible for the most things, um, and so this would be, of course, Donald Trump, but also perhaps some people in uh, highly placed people in offices in the administration, depending on what they were responsible for. There do need to be consequences for the simple reason that otherwise you're, you know, you're just saying you can get away with this kind of thing. Um, so that to me is important. It's a different approach clearly must be taken with the, you know, ordinary people. I don't, it's not that I think that the, you know, 70 million odd uh, people who voted for him in 2020 need to be punished per se, but I think we could maybe take a lesson from the uh, the program of denazification that took place in post-World War II Germany, which was more about um, just delegitimizing Nazism itself as a philosophy um, so that it was an attempt to kind of evolve the society um, and not, you know, there wouldn't be a need to sort of punish just ordinary people who might have been card-carrying members of the party and supported uh, the program. But um, what the priority would have been to ensure that it doesn't happen again, to discredit um, the ideas and concepts behind it, and to, um, you know, re-engineer the society a little bit uh, so that it was a healthier environment. And that these steps would be the most important to take um, in a situation like this. Well, it seems to me that, you know, if you're, if you're dealing with, um, if you take, if you take sort of the denazification program in uh, West Germany and then similar things that happened in East Germany behind mm -hmm. the iron curtain, if you take that as your sort of example it seems to me that there's a problem with that as an analogy and that in both instances, you had um, the military and financial might of the United States kind of hanging over West Germany that like mm -hmm. you do this or else, you know, like mm -hmm. they had massive amount of leverage yes. to force people to do things. And then on the other side, you had an even more terrifying uh, power, the power of the Kremlin to sort of, compel uh, East Germans to go through this process of denazification. So in both of those instances, you have um, overwhelming um, force that, that gives you the yes. possibility of like compelling people. And it, it seems to me that in this situation, which is a situation that, um, that people, I think, I think this is like an absolutely essential human social problem like even before civilization when we were just hunter gatherers it's like how do you get somebody else to to stop doing something shitty or or after they what is the punishment do you just like exile them but you know what do you do right so this is the situation where you don't have the i, I don't really think you have the option of um of forcing people right i i just i don't I don't know. And that, that creates all of this strange situation. Like if, if you have uh, some sort of a rebellion and, or some sort of a, a, 
people like invade your capital with guns and stuff like that. And they overrun your, your parliamentary buildings or capital mm-hmm. building and they do all this stuff. And it's, and it's a small, tiny minority, like 1% of the population, like anarchists were in the in turn of the century area or mm-hmm. something like that, where they were like shooting presidents and shit. You know, like mm-hmm. if, if it's like 1% of the population or even 5% of the population, then I think it's, you know, I'm not saying it's morally right, but at least it's feasible to say, well, let's just exile all of these people or imprison all of these people or just, or, you know, do something. Right. Mm-hmm. But this is a situation where the numbers are so large mm-hmm. that of people who have been, have become a part of this movement that I just don't even, I don't think it's feasible to. So then to me, it seems, and this is why I'm so fascinated by your, your argument. Cause like, it seems to me like some sort of messy, ugly, totally unsatisfying reconciliation is, is really the only option on the table. Um, but you know, convince me otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> well, I honestly, I don't think there are any good answers. I mean, it's going to be um, painful, uh, even in the best case scenario. Um, so uh, given where we're at, I mean, first of all, the say that the people that actually were involved in um, invading the, the U.S. Capitol, I think it's a very high priority to identify, to um, prosecute uh, in, a, in a very public way, um, everyone involved there uh, as a way to just send a message that, you know, you, you should not do this. This, this is not right. Um, I think there's been too, the, the problem I've see, I see is that there's been too much impunity um, throughout this entire uh, administration and, and, and the people following it. Um, you just can't let people just get away with things. There need to be consequences. Um, so I do think that the, those who have actually, you know, broken laws and endangered people's lives should be held to account um, rather strictly. Um, the people that are not directly involved in such things, um, they, you know, I, there's, there's nothing to to punish per se, but there is. It is very important to discredit um, the ideas. Uh, so this may involve, to some degree, um, new regulations involving media and social media, so that it's not quite so easy for Fox News to um, broadcast outright lies. Um, that there is, you know, and this has obviously been a subject of, of much discussion lately is how does, how does Facebook and Twitter, how do they kind of moderate and, you know, uh, prevent misinformation from going haywire without being too censorious. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a tricky thing, but if you don't do anything about it, then, you know, it just gets worse. Um, and, uh, you know, propaganda and falsehoods just run wild. And, and then you can't really engage with your fellow citizens because they're l- really living on another planet in terms of not just what they believe, but also of what they're accepting as factual truths. Uh, we're already seeing that. So I'm not sure what the answer is, but those are things that, that 
really would need to be dealt with. And I don't, I think what we should not be doing is humoring uh, people and, and their um, sort of idiotic ideas. Yeah. Well, just to sort of contrast what, what you've said with um, David from uh, was a you know, mm-hmm. immediate never I know. Trumper. Yeah. And, uh, and he's, you know, and he uh, wrote obviously uh, Trumpocracy and then Trumpocalypse and in Trumpocalypse, <clears throat> he says that um, he, he talks a great deal about how, how, how does this end? You know, what is the end game of all of this? And he says that basically um, the people like the sort of uh, media personalities and the social media personalities and the, um, the people who like were actively collaborating with all of the shady stuff that Trump is doing, those people have to have consequences. Some of them need to go to jail. Uh, most of them just need to be basically uh, cut out of polite society for, you know, they can go live with Ezra Levant and you know, oh, yeah. <laughs> crazy people. Like, I don't, you know, I'm not going to wish that on anyone. <laughs> yeah. And so they, they should just sort of, you know, be, cut out of like ever having you know mm-hmm. polite society you don't get to sit at the adult table ever again um but he said the vast majority of um of trump supporters and people who voted for him and showed up to rallies and stuff like that uh he says those there should just be a blanket amnesty because um and and we should see them and this is where he very much differs with what you're saying. Like mm-hmm. we should see them as basically victims of a confidence scam. Yes. You know, that they were like, they were like basically taken in by a Bernie Madoff like character, mm-hmm. like a Jim Jones like character. And they, they have basically, um, unlike, you know, the, the politics and business and media people who've like, uh, mm-hmm. gained a great deal from the association with Trump. Uh, these are people who've uh, gained absolutely nothing and lost a great deal, right? So uh, he says for them, there should just be an absolute blanket amnesty and just treat them like people who got taken in by some cult or, you know. Right. I strongly disagree with that uh, because it's, first of all, it's not really true. And that's one of the things that I've been pushing back uh, against with with my post and and elsewhere, um, because I think it's very it's a real falsehood, and it's it's letting people off the hook for uh, choices that they made. Um, I, I I don't think that people were you know hypnotized. Uh, I think they did participate in their own propagandization, um, and you know a lot of this was going on long before Donald Trump, you know, entered politics. Right. So it's, he just accelerated the process, but uh, you know, that's, that's something, uh, you know, I'm not sure what the answer is, but uh, part of it is just sort of like, there's, there's a kind of policing that should be done just by people in society that is not sort of official or concrete, but uh, you know, by the use of, opprobrium and um, ostracism in some cases. Um, we we need to really make it clear to um, our fellow citizens who have uh, willingly and, uh, you know, gone down this path uh, 
that that we do hold them responsible, that it is wrong, that, yeah, they we're not going to let them sit at the table um, until they, you know, they've learned something because it's just going to happen again. And they're, the lesson that they're going to take away from it is that oh, it wasn't my fault. Um, uh, you know, so that's why I would point a bit to the denazification um, uh, precedent because, you know, it wasn't necessarily about punishing people, but it was about, you know, drawing lines about uh, what was okay and what was not okay. And to some degree, like some of that responsibility, I think just falls on us as people um, to, uh, in how we, how we treat them. Um, And I don't think it should be spiteful, but I think it needs to be not um, uh, permissive, I guess. Well, I, if I can just sort of read one thing from your, your article, you say, mm-hmm. um, uh, 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 that's why it's so important to respond with contempt, mm-hmm. to belittle and mock them, to ostracize and exclude them from our social gatherings once we eventually start having those again, mm-hmm. to refuse them service at our businesses and workplaces, and to generally delegitimize them in every possible way. I'm not saying that out of my own distaste for them. I'm saying that as a vital matter of public safety. One of the reasons there's recently been a resurgence in outright Nazism is that unlike past decades following World War II, we began to ease up on the intensity of repulsion expressed towards Nazis. Increasingly, our own commitment to open-mindedness and tolerance of other viewpoints left us too hamstrung to effectively contain them granting them more breathing room to emerge and pollute the body politic once again. Now Nazis feel comfortable enough to march openly in the streets while we agonize over whether it's ethical to punch one of them in the head while they're being interviewed by a TV crew. Always remember, the Nazis aren't going to play on our terms or abide by our ethical standards, so we need not apply any to them in turn. Uh, yeah, <laughs> so that's your yeah. uh, your argument, which is a, a very different one from uh, what David Frum says. And yes. Uh, yeah, so it's, yeah, I, I'm so, so, so conflicted on this because I also, I you know, I do, well, for a lot of reasons. I mean, partially, okay, break it into pieces here. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, um, I, one of the things that I've studied for years and taught on is um, cults and mm-hmm. uh, religious uh, extreme movements and political extreme movements and various things like that. And, you know, one of the things that you hear again and again, I mean, most recently, there's been a couple of really good books that have come out on Jim Jones and the People's Temple recently. And there was a wonderful, really, really good podcast um, called, uh, it's part of the podcast, Martyr Made Podcast, and mm-hmm. uh, Daryl Cooper, and he did like an eight-part series on Jim Jones and the, the People's Temple. And one of the things that he stresses in that podcast, and that other people have who've written books on this have stressed, is that a lot of the people after the fact, they just say, oh, I was brainwashed by Jim Jones. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't, you know, I had no, like, agency. I had no moral responsibility. I was, it was all him, right? And as, you know, Derek Cooper points out, he was just one man, right? 
it was just one guy like all these people like all these bad things that happen you know killing children poisoning people manipulating people high, orchestrating murders you know just terrible terrible things like those were done by other people people who didn't have a gun to their head mm-hmm. they made they made decisions but after the fact it's always very convenient for people to say oh jim jones made me do it the cult leader made me do it i'm not responsible for any of the shitty things that i yeah. did or or look past or oh, hitler made me do it mussolini made me do it stalin mm-hmm. made me do it like and it's yeah, it's a it's a real sort of I get that, and I, yeah. I, I see what you're saying there, um, and I also well, see and I also see the hypocrisy of you know many of my Republican relatives who are all in favor of people who've done crimes, primarily minority people, mm-hmm. you know, losing their voting rights and having this stain you know hang over them even after they've done their time. And then suddenly saying, "Oh, we want total amnesty for anything. <laughs> yeah. like, whoa, you know, so I get all of that. I just don't know if this is feasible uh yes, I mean uh, let me just touch on that brainwashing thing because i i did I did have a little section about that in my uh in my essay um because I think that true brainwashing is actually a really rare thing uh I don't think that really happens very often. Um, where someone is really truly against their will and had no agency whatsoever. Um, that's not something that happens hardly at all, I think. Um, so when we talk about, you know, and people have, have, have responded to me in some ways of saying, well, it's not these people's fault. They've been, they've been, you know, brainwashed by the steady diet of Fox news and right wing talk radio. But, you know, I have to remind them that, uh, those things don't that you're not going to totally change a person um through that they they're tuning into those things because it's telling them something they already want to hear it is tapping into um you know dark a darkness that they already have within themselves and they are still they still do have agency you know they don't need to you know keep listening to lies on, on Fox news and stuff. There's, I think we're letting people off the hook, you know, far too much. And I'm, you know, and there's a, there is a racial aspect to this because we certainly, you know, um, because pretty much most of these, uh, you know, the Trump supporters and certainly the people that stormed the Capitol, I mean, we're talking about white people and, you know, in some cases, affluent um, white people with, you know, all the privilege that it entails. Uh, and, you know, people who aren't white, uh, you know, they're not granted that sort of leeway. They're not um, given the benefit of the doubt in so many situations. Um, you know, so there's a deep unfairness, it appears to me, in that. And I feel like people do need to be held to account more than they are in situations like this. It doesn't necessarily mean punishment or retribution, but it means, um, you know, not uh, not letting them off the hook for their own agency and their own responsibility in what they've participated in. Uh, and so that's that's a point that I that I just keep making. Yeah, well, the I mean, this is <laughs> this is all of the can of worms, but like I, I'll just say very very briefly that. Um, 
I'm, I'm very much up on the literature on, on brainwashing mm-hmm. and it is uh, practically nobody believes it's a thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's been debunked. It's considered pseudoscience um, for all the reasons that you said that um, it, it, it doesn't really exist in, in the way that people popularly used to imagine it, like the Manchurian candidate, <laughs> like the kind of yes. like, you know, the, it doesn't exist. And it's the best sort of way of thinking about it is that it's very similar to hypnosis, right? Yes. So uh, my, my friend, Albert Nuremberg um, is a uh, you know, Canadian filmmaker and hypnotist yes. and, uh, and Albert, he's been on this podcast, uh, you know, twice. He was actually, I think, the first guest we had on. But uh, he's um, he's a hypnotist, and he's explained to me in detail what hypnotism is all about. And mm-hmm. absolutely, you cannot hypnotize somebody that doesn't want to be hypnotized. Exactly. It's a participatory they have, <clears throat> exercise. Yes, completely participatory. They have to be. Uh, they have to be willing. They have to assent to it. And if they assent to it then you can sort of put them into this incredibly relaxed, um, semi-conscious, highly suggestible state mm-hmm. of mind. And then once they're in that state of mind, um, you can get them to do all sorts of stuff. And, and maybe, maybe you know, some of the things that you get them to do, uh, like I'm, I'm really easy to hypnotize. <laughs> right. Like really, really easy. And Albert has hypnotized me and got me to do all sorts of crazy yeah. shit. But so... But you you can seed in post hypnotic suggestions as well, uh, but but as my understanding is, you you can't really suggest to somebody in a hypnotic state anything that would be uh, that that they wouldn't morally do um, otherwise. So well, um, that I think is I think that is actually a matter of debate. I don't know if that's okay. settled. Like, I don't know what, I don't know what the truth about that is, but I do know that, uh, you know, I, because of, you know, I've, I've known Albert since I was, Oh my God, I've known him for 37 years. I've known him since I was like nine, <laughs> nine or 10 years old. He ran the, uh, theater, the like community theater place right by my house in, uh, mm-hmm. but anyway, uh, Anyway, like so, I, I thought of myself as being a, a very uh, easily hypnotized person because whenever I'd gone to his things, I could be hypnotized so easily. So somebody else who um, who I met who was a hypnotist said, uh, "Hey, can I try and hypnotize you?" And he couldn't hypnotize me at all, mm-hmm. right? And so I th- I found this really fascinating, and I so I talked to Albert about it. And he said, uh, "Well, you know." You don't trust him. You don't know him. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. You know me, and so you know I'm not going to, you know, make you do anything like that you would regret. You know, I might do something that's funny, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I'm not. I'm not going to make you do something that would horrify you or disgust you later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, if I, I asked him about exactly what you just said, and his response was. Um, that's a matter of a great deal of debate. Uh-huh. He said, I, I, he was, I happen to think that once, um, once somebody's in that state, you can get them to do things that they would never do normally. And that it's basically, uh, and other people say no. And he goes, I think, I think a lot of hypnotists say no as a, a way of sort of excusing 
anything, <laughs> anything, you know, it's a, it's a, they're interested parties in saying that he goes, I think if, if you trust somebody, um, you know, and that's, if you look in every language, right, the, the, the etymological root of the word face is, um, it, it's much less esoteric than we usually imagine it. Faith basically just comes down to, I trust you, yes. right? It, it just means I trust you. So uh, if you say you have faith in somebody or something, it's like, I trust you so that even if I don't have um, evidence, I trust that you're not going to fuck me over or, or embarrass me or, 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 you know, I trust that. Right. So yes, um, I think once people sort of trust Tucker Carlson or Rush Limbaugh or, you know, Newt Gingrich or one of these Sean Hannity or, you know, um, Alex Jones, right. Once they trust that person and they think of that person, as like, okay, you, you get me and you share a lot of my concerns and my commitments and stuff like that. And they, then it's sort of like me trusting Albert Nuremberg. It's like, okay, I, I'm going to relax, let my guard down, and I'm going to listen to what you say. And I think, I think at that point, people, you know, can be led down paths that they normally wouldn't go. Well, there's, uh, you know, where you would normally go and is perhaps distinct from where you would morally uh, have a complete aversion to going. Um, because, you know, it's not uncommon is my understanding. I mean, I'm only spitballing here because hypnotism is not something I have in-depth knowledge about. Uh, but I'm skeptical that you can, through hypnosis, um, convince someone to do something that they would absolutely have uh, morally, you know, refuse to do. I think you can convince people to do, you know, um, embarrassing things that are things that, you know, they might do if they were drunk or, um, you know, in a certain frame of mind. Uh, but I, I find it, you know, unpersuasive to, to consider that they might do something that is completely against uh, everything that they know to be right. Um, well, I'll give you, I'll give you a concrete, uh, yeah, I'll give you a concrete example. Cause there's a guy, uh, he's he actually uh, has been on the podcast. He's um, he he does consulting work for a number of intelligence agencies, including the the FBI and the CIA and um, CSIS and a number of other uh, Israeli intelligence, the Mossad, all these different mm-hmm. things. And he specifically he consults um, on um, radicalization. So how do people get radicalized over the internet? And, and mm-hmm. you know, so some sweet kid from you know the suburbs of Montreal uh over the course of six months wants to join ISIS and like buys a ticket to Syria. I mean this has happened here a number of times and um all over the place, right? Um so he he studies the process of radicalization and um I <laughs> before he came on the podcast, I went and you know read um, I read three of his books and his first book completely blew my mind because it was his first book. Um, he, he's done stuff on Al Qaeda on the nine 11 terrorists and all these different things. But his first book was, was very autobiographical. 
And it was about how a Jewish kid from a super progressive family in the Pacific Northwest got radicalized <laughs> as converted to Islam and got radicalized into this jihadist group. And he like, he, he sort of talks about like the step by step, you know, process of, you know, what people would traditionally call brainwashing or, or hip, hypnosis and how, how it wasn't just like, you know, one day to the next, it was this very kind of gradual process. And he eventually, um, well, he explains how he, he snapped out of it, mm-hmm. but, but he talks about how these sort of, these communities and these, the, the evangelists, the people that just kind of push this stuff, they're, they're so smooth and they're so slick and they, mm-hmm. the arguments come very slowly and it's just pushing boundaries of what is normal more and more. And it's gradually kind of, um, you know, excluding you. Like if you wear, if you suddenly start dressing like a member of the nation of Islam or, or you start, you know, wearing a MAGA hat, right. That's like farting in an elevator. Like it, it kind of, like, you know, it makes a lot of people just stay away from you in exactly the way you're saying that we should do, you know, mm-hmm. it, it kind of it repels a lot of people. And, but it also is like, like flying a flag and other people who are also um, having these outward, very obvious symbols, right? Uh, Trump is my president, you know, uh, all this stuff. You find a community and that community is, becomes more and more, like epistemologically isolated yes by being classic, ostracized as a cult <clears throat> yes mm-hmm. and they get they get more and more kind of crazy the more that they're ostracized by people like you um <laughs> and they sure but they that, get that, more yeah. and then there's nobody around them to challenge any of the stuff that they say well I got to counter that with um, that still happens even when there are people around constantly trying to counter those things. Um, You know, it's, it still happens. Um, So I, I, you know, I'm not sure what to offer there. I I think, you know, there, there are big questions uh, to me about responsibility and what, and what our concept of responsibility is these days, because it seems there are uh, very conflicting standards where a 12-year-old black kid can be shot to death by police because he didn't comply fast enough to put down his toy gun. And we say, well, it's his responsibility that he died because he didn't uh, obey the, the police fast enough. Whereas on the other hand, um, you know, a white uh, Trump supporter can you know, smash a window, invade the U.S. Capitol and assault police officer. And, you know, are, we're, we're ready to say, well, it wasn't really his responsibility. He was propagandized by Sean Hannity and et cetera, et cetera. So we can't really hold him responsible for his actions. And so there's a great deal of inconsistency in how we, how we attribute responsibility for things. And, uh, you know, so one of my points is just that, no, we, 
we should not be um, letting people off the hook for their own share of responsibility, even if they have been, you know, gradually propagandized and that's, and they are sort of in a form of a uh, cult. Uh, I don't think that should absolve them of their own role. Yeah. Well, there's always a way, there's always a way that you can dodge those hard questions, at least so pragmatically, you can just say, look, we, you're totally responsible for your actions. And so we're going to hold you responsible for your actions. However, um, if we want to prevent this stuff from happening in the future, um, then let's understand how these people got to this point and let's do what we can to prevent that from happening. And I think yeah. you can do those things at the same time. Like you can, I mean, there's this whole, uh, it, you see it primarily in a lot of like conservative um, intellectual circles where they say that there's this this natural opposition between you know as this, the the famous line is when Harper said this is not the time to commit sociology right <laughs> in in understanding the the terrorists um, who uh, killed all, maimed all those people in the Boston Marathon and and so mm-hmm. Trudeau was saying like uh, well we need to sort of understand how people get radicalized by that. Um, and the thing is, is like I heard Trudeau's uh, full comments and I actually, you know, at another point, you know, my wife kind of talked to him, you know, specifically about this issue. And, and I know he, he actually thinks that uh, people who do things like that are a hundred percent like responsible. Yes. He was just saying we want to, and should be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. He was just saying, well, we want, we want to figure out how they of course. Got, got like that so we can prevent it from happening in the future. Yes. So, yeah, you can you can do those. It's not an either or. It's not like yeah. to completely understand is to completely forgive as the French expression goes, yes. right? But I, I, I and I've, I've sort of run in, uh, some people have had some a bit of confusion as well. And I, I remember that incident and there's sort of like, um, it was mischaracterized as saying, oh, we should, you know, coddle them and hold their hand and sort of, uh, no, we do. It is important to, uh, to understand, uh, how, you know, the causation of things, but that doesn't mean we need to, um, grant, when I say this, um, you know, we don't, we don't need to necessarily respectfully engage with them in order to do that there you know this is a thing that drives me nuts <laughs> a bit is that um we hear the trump supporters are you know they're constantly <laughs> um publishing their thoughts um widely we don't have to guess we don't need to sit down for breakfast with them to know what they're thinking um they make that very clear and so I'm not saying, oh, we shouldn't try to understand, you know, uh, the, the, the causes, but we also have to make sure we don't help to validate and normalize it by being too solicitous of, uh, you know, hearing them out. Um, it's, it's not necessary and it's, and it's counterproductive. Yeah. Well, I, I definitely, I totally agree with you in terms of the, there's not, it's definitely not an, an either or between understanding and, and being 
judgmental. Because I, I mean, even just with my father, I mean, my father um, is a very, very abusive, you know, not not a good man, <laughs> a really bad man, um, very abusive towards his children, towards my mother, towards a lot of he's not not a good man. Now I understand um, that um, that he was himself, you know, uh, treated horribly, horribly by my grandfather and beaten and you know just you know treated just horribly um, by my grandfather. So I understand you know how he became the person that he is, but for me that doesn't in any way mm-hmm. excuse uh, the things that he did you know, to, to his children and to his partners and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So not at all, because, because you know what, I know lots of people who were um, abused way worse than him who are fucking awesome and are really nice and are loving, sweet, gentle people. So yeah, yeah, you know, I a hundred percent agree. Like um, it doesn't uh, explain away. Yeah. I mean, you know, that uh, uh, many serial killers, um, probably most of them, uh, were sexually abused as children. Um, but that, you know, which may offer some degree of explanation as to where they ended up. But what, what that doesn't mean is that, you know, there's, there's no way we should be going like, well, you know, it's understandable then, you know, I mean, given what they went through, like, uh, how can we blame them? for serial killing, you know, and that's, <laughs> that's essentially though, what we're being asked of by in some quarters uh, about the, the people who stormed the Capitol and about the Trump supporters and, and this sort of, um, you know, relieving them of, of all responsibility and, and agency uh, is, you know, I, I, that's what I I'm pushing back against. And it's, it's just wrong. Like it's, no matter what struggles you may have been experiencing, you're still making, you know, you're still making choices that are your own. Um, and I think we, we, we must never lose sight of that. Yeah. How do you, how do you respond to, cause this is something which I must confess, I have 100% um, avoided responding to like zero response um, since the events that we're talking about happened. Uh, people who say, um, you know, it's a what about thing. They're like, well, how come you weren't saying anything about all the violence of the black lives matter protests? And uh, my policy since Wednesday has just been absolutely zero response to that. Mm. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, but you know, I, it well, is it is an it is an interesting question because like I I did I read that book that everybody was talking about you know uh, a couple of months ago the in defense of looting and uh-huh. it was one of the two worst books I read in 2020. <laughs> okay. It was complete fucking garbage, right? Uh, on many levels, um, it was. Yeah, I would actually say it actually edges out. Chris Hedges, um, A Farewell to America, which was the second place worst book <laughs> I read in, in 2020. But In Defense of Looting was reviewed positively mm. on NPR's website. Uh, a number of like uh, mainstream sort of liberal left magazines reviewed the book positively. And this was a defense of 
violence. Right. <laughs> and not just violence, you know, but a defensive kind of looting people's like stores and businesses and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And so the, the response that a lot of people I know have, uh, have said on the right and, and even in the center um, is like, whoa, <laughs> how come it was okay when these political movements moved by grievances and by stuff were uh, crossing the line and destroying property and attacking federal buildings in various cities and, and you weren't saying anything about it. And now this is like a big deal. I mean, how, how would you respond to that? Uh, well, I certainly, I, I'm, I did not read that book. Um, so I, I can't, don't, okay. don't. <laughs> I'll, I'll trust you on that. Um, <laughs> yes. And it's, it is a bit of a tricky thing because there are um, schools of um, direct action, um, you know, uh, even sort of through Antifa and um, other, you know, anarchist uh, groups who do advocate, um, you know, more violent measures such as that. Uh, for my part, I, I never um, approved of, uh, you know, uh, breaking windows and and looting in the uh black lives matter protests and, and i don't think that that was actually a prominent part of it really it was just you know uh um a newsworthy part but actually most of the time was just people marching um and you know i won't be categorical about it but I, i'm gonna say like no i did not defend the violence and uh destruction and looting at that time so no, there's no hypocrisy on my part uh, here. Um, Do you think there's but, a difference? I mean, I, I'm, I'm in the same position as you. Like I, I was, uh, my wife and I and our, our sons, we marched in the BLM protests. We were mm-hmm. you know, very supportive of that, uh, you know, reflexively pretty much. Um, mm-hmm. but, but we also uh, were very, very loudly critical of, of any kind of violence that happened right mm-hmm. right away. So, so we're sort of, you know, I'm sort of like, you know, I'm covered on that. Nobody can like say that I'm being, you know, having double standards on this. However, do you think there's something different between this violence um, and the violence that happened you know, last summer? Uh it's somewhat, I, I, I wouldn't overstate it. Um, what's more significant about this is, uh, you know, um, it's so clearly fascist um, and it's so, uh, tar- it's targeted in, um, in a way that has bigger consequences. So there's a big difference, I would say, you know, whether you think it's right or wrong to break some shop windows and loot stuff out of, out of a store. Um, versus um, uh, storming into a government building during a, um, you know, a, a, a fairly important democratic procedure and with the aim of actually stopping that. So there's actually a kind of um, pol- uh, bigger political goal. Um, I mean, it was also kind of very stupid and haphazard but but that it actually did have that effect it did um 
delay everything for several hours and um, disrupted things. And, and people did die and people, you know, have been hospitalized and, um, you know, it was, it was much more of a terrorist uh, act than I think, you know, looting stores, um, which is also wrong, but, you know, I, I would, I would draw that distinction there. Yeah, for, for me, the big distinction, and I just to run this by you and tell me what you think of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've been staying quiet about this because I was sort of, first of all, because I just wanted, didn't want to play that stupid whataboutism game, you know, but like, yeah. but also because I was trying to sort of think about whether, um, whether I thought there was actually a difference between these things. And I, I, I agree with you. I think there's a ex- very, very important uh, differences. And I, one of them is that this was so premeditated, right? Mm-hmm. Like we, we have a difference in our culture between we differentiate between murder and manslaughter, right? Whoops, I killed you, but I was being negligent. Mm-hmm. So how negligent? Well, first degree, second degree, third degree. And then murder is like you intentionally kill somebody. It's like, well, how, how premeditated was it, right? So mm-hmm. first degree, second degree, third degree. So I think when it comes to uh, violence, that happens, you know, as a function of movements or, or protests or, you know, stuff like that. I, once again, I think a similar um, yes. thing should be applied. And this was so, they had gear, they had yep. t-shirts, you know, they were tweeting, Trump was tweeting stuff out in December, mm-hmm. but you know, January 6th, it's going to be wild. Show up. Yep. They had everything. This was so premeditated. Whereas, you know, if I, to the best of my knowledge, and I've, I, you know, I've spent a fair amount of time looking into this uh, over the last couple of days, and then even when it was happening back last summer, the violence that happened as a function of um, sort of Black Lives Matter activism, it was sort of small groups mm-hmm. that were part of the the crowd or something like that who went off at the end. And it looked very opportunistic. Yes. It looked very much like uh, actually just something that happened in the moment. It looked much more, you know, in the kind of, let's say, like third degree manslaughter area, if we want to stick to that analogy. Whereas this was like first degree murder. This was like absolutely, absolutely. They had zip ties ready uh, to, to take lots and lots of hostages. They had... They had all sorts of things, like a lot of weaponry. This is very, very yes. And I think this is what's really important here, um, and and you've you've kind of zeroed in on it. Is that um, this was very planned, and it was planned actually not by a single entity, but there were a number of existing um, fascistic and terrorist uh, and white supremacist groups who were all planning for this occasion. Uh, so it's a very, very important to keep that in mind because there's, there's sometimes a, uh, a sort of, uh, narrative about, about it, that it was just like, oh, this was just like, um, you know, frustrated citizens who, you know, thought that their, that the election was being stolen from them and, and, and they didn't know what else to do. So out of frustration, they just, you know, spontaneously went to the U S Capitol and et cetera. And of course it's, that's all nonsense. 
Um, so that is a very important thing to be pushing back on and to always point to, well, no, the, the Proud Boys were doing this, the Groypers were doing this, um, this, this was a, uh, a, a terrorist event. Yeah. And they, they had it all. I mean, and to the extent to which it was um, sort of sloppy and didn't achieve its goals. Um, I think that's, that's not because they didn't really, really try their best you mm. know? and they didn't have like a lot of premeditation. It's just mm. because, um, you know, in any, even if you have a bunch of like, special forces guys who are like super jacked and you know jump out of helicopters all the time yeah. even then even with people who it doesn't are, always go it doesn't to always go to plan you know things yeah. go wrong when you're actually so if you take a bunch of people who don't have much of that kind of training at all mm-hmm. um, although it does seem very worrisome how many of these people are well some do yes ex-law enforcement and, and uh and ex kind of military but mm-hmm. um yeah, it, it, of course things were going to go wrong, you know, but mm. but it does seem like it was very very, and it, it also looks like Roger Stone, you know, the uh-huh. evil one, yeah, um, <laughs> was involved in the planning of this. That uh, does not surprise me. Yeah, and it was and in the coordination and things like that. Mm. So I'm wondering if if these people now this is another idea I want to run by you. So I was talking to Stephen Marsh about this. He was on the podcast a little while ago and he's writing a book right now on um, the the coming civil war. He believes that mm. the United States is head, heading for another civil war. I wouldn't so, rule it out. Yeah. And so that's, he's writing a book on that right now and I think he's almost done. But, um, and so I was sort of pushing back on him on this idea and um, I said, you know, I think actually uh, what is a likely scenario is and and now it, it's happened. I said uh, a likely scenario is at some point um, the Trumpist far right they are going to really do something crazy. Like they're gonna they're gonna like you know shoot Nancy Pelosi or they're gonna like you know, they're gonna do something crazy that really is just so over the line. Mm-hmm. And what is going to happen is finally the social media platforms and stuff like that are going to crack down on uh, these people in a big way. Um, and they're going to kick them off of all of their uh, platforms, including Trump and everything. They're going to kick them off. This is going to finally confirm uh, what conservatives and uh, people on the right have been saying for a long time that they're all out to get us. And, you know, there's this huge bias and so like, you know, you know, the whole, the whole yeah. spiel, but so, and this is, um, so they're going to say, see, uh, and they're going to say, let's all go to, uh, to these other platforms. Mm-hmm. But what's going to happen is the vast majority of their numbers are not going to go. <laughs> yeah. Or, or they're going to, because I, I know people who, you know, like old friends or family members who are pretty fucking far right, mm-hmm. like, you know, hardcore evangelical Christians who like Alex Jones and like, are you know, they're really far right. And they've gone to things like parlor mm-hmm. and things like, and they've like gone off within two days. They're like, Oh my God. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, like, was it, was like, it too much even for them? Oh, way too much. Uh-huh. Way too much. So my my prediction is that uh, 
when they get kicked off of these things, mm-hmm. it actually does take the wind out of the sails, uh, and I, people don't go on mass to a new uh, to new platforms. Yeah. And but here's the this is what makes it like a double bank shot in pool <laughs> uh, because of um, the huge um, kind of public opinion backlash against the social media companies because of kicking all these people off it will um, make it possible for the federal government to, they'll, they'll have the political will to really step in and regulate these companies in a way that they should have been regulated a long time ago. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a win-win. <laughs> like that, that's my prediction. Possibly. My, I mean, we're, some of those things are starting to unfold now. Um, yes. And yeah, the, the, the migration of social platforms, I would just to, it, it reminded me a bit because, um, you know, I'm on Facebook, obviously, that's where I wrote my piece. And, um, you know, a lot of people, had, you know, there's a lot of concerns about Facebook, um, aside from any of these political things. And so I constantly, you know, I have a lot of friends who are just like, I'm, I'm leaving Facebook. Um, the th- I've, I haven't wanted to do that because I still, there's a, I, I, on balance, I find it's, more useful than problematic uh, in my case. I still, you know, I, I get work through it. Um, I'm able to keep in touch with people, et cetera. And I remember there's every, every so often there's like, okay, let's all go to, um, there was one called Ello, uh, which um, I don't know if you remember that. And so yeah. I, I was like, okay, I'll sign up for, but you know, there's, there's just nothing happening. Like there has to be a critical mass of like, everybody's got to migrate at once or else there's, you know, it's just an empty room with like a lot of echoes, right? Yeah. So um, I, I think that's, we're going to see that happening a little bit. Like uh, what was the other one? Gab, um, you know, which which became kind of a thing for a while, but I don't, I don't know if it ever took off. It certainly never uh, became uh, anything on the scale of Twitter. And Parler, uh, you know, I, I don't know what's going to happen with that. I know some of the... Um, you know, Apple and uh, Android, like they're they're actually banning the app now from 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 their devices. Uh, so so I don't know I don't know what's going to happen with that. Um, you did bring up something that I want to touch on briefly, uh, which is very germane here, um, which is a sort of like the persecution complex, and that there's often you know we often worry about like yeah, but if we if Twitter were to shut down Donald Trump's account, um, isn't that just going to uh, verify his claims of um, bias and censorship, blah, blah, blah. blah. Um, and I, I sometimes worry that we're, we're a little over-concerned about those kind of consequences. And uh, because this comes up a lot, like sometimes, you know, because I'm very in the, in the pro-punching Nazis in the face, um, contingent. And when people would argue with me about that, it's one of the, sometimes one of the things they would say is like, but you're just now they're you're, you're giving them um, a chance to play the victim, which is only going to help their cause. And I actually, it's, you know, anyone who knows anything about fascism and, and Nazism, uh, they, they do that anyway. You don't need to, it doesn't really matter what you do. You could, you know, you could be, you could give them everything or you can beat the shit out of them. They're going to be the victim anyway. Remember, according to, um, according to the Nazis, um, they didn't, they didn't even start World War II. It was Poland that attacked them, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that is just kind of built into 
um, fascist uh, practice. Um, so I think we need to worry a little bit less about, um, you know, justifying their, their, their persecution complexes, because that's, that's just what they do anyway. So that's, that's another thing we need to be cautious of, of coddling. Um, yeah, that's it. David Frum yeah. has that wonderful line in Trump Arclips where he says like, you know, that one of the biggest ironies of the, the Trump movement is that, you know, the very people who go on and on about, you know, snowflakes and the, the tender mm. feelings of youth and stuff like, yes, they are the biggest snowflakes yes. in, in the world. They are the ones that are most triggered yeah. by like things. They're the ones that are most kind of like, so it's, yeah, there is a very strange irony. And, and I believe that when they do that, we should pile on and actually mock them for their thin skinnedness. Uh, I think that really is important um, because it just, you know, what the the one thing that does ha- that is somewhat effective with with Nazis is um, they don't want to look weak, right? So when uh, Richard Spencer, you know, four years ago, I'm going to celebrate the anniversary of it very soon, <laughs> um, you know, was punched in the face on camera. Um, you know, it was good. It was a good thing, and even though. Um, you know, for a short time, he was able to kind of, um, parlay that into a sort of, um, you know, uh, victimhood, but ultimately it, it did weaken him. Um, he eventually did get mostly deplatformed. So it's, it's a mostly happy story there. Uh, and I actually made my own little edit of that, uh, scene where I, um, I kind of sped up his voice a bit. So he sounded a bit, um, like a munchkin. And then I had the Benny Hill music, you know, the yakety sax playing in the background. Oh my gosh. Crack. And I think then, I saw this. Yeah. So I that's, I, saw this, like, I made that yeah. a while ago. You yeah. made that? Oh my god! I told you. Yeah. I mean, there were many people had many takes on it. With you know, oh, but I, I remember the Benny Hill. But yeah, 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 yeah. And 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 then when he, you know, we got punched, and I add, I kind of beefed up the sound effects, and uh, and then at the end, we, they show like he's walking away down the sidewalk through the crowd, and he sort of looks back, you know, kind of ruefully uh, rubbing his his face. And I did a freeze frame there, and did the um, you know, the 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 sad trombone kind of. <laughs> so the purpose behind all of that is to really make him look like a uh, weak and foolish. And this is actually something that is very important to do uh, with, with fascists um, because, you know, yeah, they, they love to complain about um, being victims, but they don't really like being victims for real. And, it actually works against their recruiting efforts if they, you know, are getting beaten up and mocked and made to look foolish. Um, you know, so it is, it is important to do that. I, I don't, uh, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's true. I mean, it may be this true, but it seems to me like for a lot of people, um, the best thing that can I mean, it's it's sort of like the old band in Boston thing, right? Where um, theater productions and various, you know, back in the day, uh, the Catholic Church was had a real lock on Boston, and they any show to go on in Boston had to pass by this like mm-hmm. board, and they were super moralistic, and they didn't want any 
mention of you know any sexuality any like anything or any kind of atheism or all these different things and so um, people would actually um, go <laughs> they would open their show first in Boston um, and but it was it was a fake open right and they would get rejected and this was like a real mm. stamp of approval like banned in Boston and they would um, and Nassim Nicholas Taleb in his book Anti-Fragile he has um he has a whole discussion of this and he says that, you know, there's a, a number of different, um, whether it's Anne Rand or uh, there's a number of different movements and, and writers and ideas that became really popular precisely because their critics were so vociferously against them. Right. And this actually made lots of people say, oh, I want to I want to go and see what's going on over there. Right. Like, well, it's because it 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 ended up in a sort of way empowering. them, Right. Yeah. Um, and so, But your but, point, but, your but, point, but your what point I'm talking about is not that strong. You're yes. saying they want to seem strong. And so if you can make them look weak. Yeah. Um, that I, I totally get your logic. And I think that applies to um, to a lot of. To a lot of people yeah. and movements that I that I can think of off the top of my head, like for instance, this one, to, this mm-hmm. one, I don't think it, I don't think it does because it seems to me that, as David from rightly observes, these people who are the biggest critics of identity politics and victim culture and the oppression Olympics are the biggest participants in it. Mm-hmm. Like they really, really do see themselves as victims. And they see themselves, and so when you victimize them, um, all you're doing is like getting them. I think I think you're just getting them more recruits. Uh, I'm not sure about that because I don't think it ultimately helped uh, in Richard Spencer's case. Um, and there's a difference between, like, as I said before, they're going to play that victim card regardless, even if you're respectful to them uh, or ignore them or what, you know, like they're going to do that anyway. They are just going to do that anyway. That's, that's what they do. Um, so I think what, what is important to do is to sort of degrade them ultimately, because they sort of don't, they, they're like, they want, um, what they're looking for is a kind of historic, uh, heroic victimization. They don't want a, um, getting clowned victimization. Right, so they're they're trying to stage their victimization to, so that they look valiant. Um, so it, what's important is to actually like make them look like pathetic and stupid. And you know, I, I can point to one thing that I think supports a little bit what I've been saying is is that after um, so this um, storming the Capitol incident um, began with Donald Trump. Um, giving a speech and firing up the troops, telling them to march in the Capitol. And he actually said that he was going to march with them. Um, and, and so off they went thinking that their um, glorious leader would be, you know, uh, marching with them. And of course he didn't, he slunk away and um, in, in a, that, you know, took the armored limousine back to the white house so that he could just sit, sit and watch it all unfold on TV. And then, uh, you know, after everything that happened, eventually, then you know, the next day, he sort of released that uh, kind of you know hostage video where he, um, you know, begrudgingly read off the teleprompter that this was wrong and all this kind of thing, and it and it made him look weak, 
And it did weaken his hold a bit, I think, on on a certain amount, like, for sure, there, there are going to be some of, of the, you know, uh, some of them think that it was a great success storming the Capitol. But there's also the element of, of actually a lot of people felt betrayed by Trump and let down by him. And his, this video, um, you know, which most of us watched and went like, uh, you know, you know, I don't believe it for a second. He's, you know, he's like, um, uh, reluctantly reading these words off the teleprompter, but actually what, what that did serve is that it undermined him, his standing among his followers. And so it's that kind of thing that I'm, that I'm pointing to. Yeah. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess a part of me really hopes that you're, that you're right about that, but it just, it, yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not alone in this. People that really study fascism <clears throat> have also made this the same point. Yeah. Well, no, I know that's, um, you know, we had uh, we had a guy on here a little while ago, uh, Taras Gresco, and he he wrote a book all on kind of Italian fascism, and um, it's called "Possess the Air." It's like really, really good. Um, but and he he talks a lot about fascism, and definitely everything um, everything you're saying applies 100 percent to the the people he describes um, there, right? The black shirts and stuff like that, but. I, I think this is a new kind of authoritarianism, like a new kind of fascism, which um, is very much a product of, of sort of Oprah and therapy culture and, and kind of victim culture and stuff like that and the oppression Olympics. And so it's, it's a product of this time. And I think it, it feeds a lot off of um, the energy of, you know, we are just so downtrodden and we are so, it, they, they want so much to appear weak and to appear, it's almost like a rich guy. Uh, trying I'm, not, to I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I, I actually I, don't, I don't, know. I don't think so. I, th- I, I, I don't think so. I think there's, uh, I mean, there's always been this kind of um, game that's been played, um, not just by fascists, but by the Ku Klux Klan being a, a notable example where they they deliberately kind of, uh, chose to adopt these kind of ridiculous costumes and there were other kind of like um, goofy rituals that they did that there was a deliberate kind of um, uh, clown performance uh, that was intentionally uh, devised to kind of, um, you know, confuse people about what the, the, the deeply violent threat that, that lurked behind it all. So th- that's always been, um, that's, that's always been a part of it. But the distinction I would be making is that, you know, when they, when they are, when they are stage managing it to their own uh, direction, you know, that's good. That's good for them. Even if they are, um, you know, if the part of the performance is about, being downtrodden and being a victim, they're still actually projecting strength through how they are stage managing it. Um, mm. So what I'm talking about is like, actually like, um, you know, when things go off script and they actually like it, the curtain drops, the wizard of Oz is revealed to be just the fucking, you know, little guy behind the curtain. That's what we need to be doing. Right. And sort of to make sure that it doesn't fit their script. It's a new kind of humiliation that, um, you know, 
was not part of their plan. And that I think is what is, is really necessary. It's not always easy to, to know how and, how and what to do, but it, 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 it needs to be done. Yeah, there's um, in Steven Pinker's book, uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature, Why Violence Has Declined. He has this whole bit in there on, um, on a bunch of different practices that, uh, like they, he says, very uncivilized sort of barbaric practices that went out, right? And he, he has a whole thing on dueling. Mm-hmm. And he says that actually there were laws against dueling uh, for a long time and dueling was still happening. Um, because it was it was seen as being like really manly and strong and mm-hmm. you know macho and stuff like that really cool. Uh, and he said what really killed dueling was that it became exactly like you're saying it became an object of ridicule. Mm-hmm. People would make you know the sort of foghorn leghorn like mm-hmm. they just suddenly presented this this like absurd <laughs> kind of like ridiculous masculinity that you want to like go have a duel and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. It was presenting it as, as silly that ultimately just like killed the practice because mm-hmm. it was all, it was totally connected to wanting to seem, you know, really cool and mad. Like mm-hmm. So they, they, so yeah, I mean, definitely if you can, if you can ridicule something successfully, then I guess you can get, you can get rid of it. I just, I'm, I'm really sort of, <laughs> I'm really worried that something like this could backfire, you know, because like if you look at, um, oh, what is that book? Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath, mm-hmm. uh, which is all about, and, and he says, you know, he gives all these different examples and, you know, you, you have people, whether it be uh, the British in Northern Ireland, uh, you get like a new guy. He says, you know what? problem is is we've been too easy on these people we need to crack down like mm-hmm. or you get like these he gives examples from israel from northern ireland from a, d- a number of different places south africa uh, where people come in and say you know uh, you know roughly akin to what you're saying the problem is we've been too easy on these people we've been trying to understand their grievances way too much we've been trying to understand the Boers or the Palestinians or the, the Catholics in Northern Ireland. We've been, we've been too soft on these people. We got to like really crack down. And his, uh, his argument in that book is that this always backfires. Like this always just like further radicalizes um, the, the communities because uh, if you sort of ghettoize those people by excluding them from from everywhere, then they just all get together and kind of make each other more crazy. Um, and then also, every time you kind of humiliate her as one person, very often you're radicalizing their best friend, their brother, their sister, their kid. Their um, you're you're radicalizing all these other people, right? And that uh, and he says, you know, it's, this is like one of those uh, arguments that feels really. Um, emotionally satisfying, but doesn't work. Yeah, I'm not. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure about that. Um, be, uh, you know, and and also there's just uh, you know the question is well, what what do we do? We're we're sort of boxing our, ourselves in here and letting them set all the terms of engagement. Um, so you know, our if we if we 
if we push back too hard, um, that might empower them by allowing them to claim persecution. But, you know, if we are too um, permissive and, um, you know, uh, legitimizing, well, that also empowers them because they are, you know, they can point to a kind of uh, affirmation that, that, you know, so ultimately you, you get to a place where it's sort of like, there's nothing we can do, but just let them run amok. Um, and, uh, you know, that is untenable. Um, but I, I, you know, there are, there are more examples to me that are relatively successful of the ridicule and humiliation actually uh, being effective. And I think it's a bit of a different thing than like, oh, a, um, you know, a, a militarized state cracking down on, you know, in the, like in the Boer War. Like that's a different matter because that's clearly, you know, a powerful force acting uh, with brutality. That's a lot different than, you know, me um, uh, editing a video of Richard Spencer getting punched to make him look like even more foolish, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, these they're, they're not the same kind of thing. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I basically, I, I think ultimately, um, I, I share your. I'm deeply frustrated and confused about what the proper response is. Like, I, because <laughs> I like, I can see, I can see good reasons for for different kinds of, uh, different kinds of responses, and I, I don't. And there's only not only one right kind of response, but I think yeah, this, exactly. This, this it's, should it's, be part of the arsenal for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's it's somewhat you know somewhat akin to the situation that I've seen with uh, with you know friends and and family members um, who you know have like a someone in their life who's got a really serious addiction, you know, like a really bad addiction, mm-hmm. and you know, if you're dealing with somebody who has like stolen from you and has like violated your trust and done things like it's really, really hard. If you, if you, if you know, if you love that person and you feel responsible for them and it's like, well, do you just cut them off completely? Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I guess in some instances, I guess people that, that has to be done, but then, you know, how are you going to feel when you see that person like, you know, homeless on the street, like 10 years ago with later with no teeth. Right. Mm -hmm. And you know, like that's your brother. So, um, but then trying to keep the person in your life, do you just love them unconditionally and forgive them all the time? And you place limits on, uh, you know, okay, you can be in my life, but I'm not leaving the kids with you and you know, I'm not lending right. you any money and you can't have a key to my house. Uh, so like, how do you, <laughs> it's just, this is a horrible thing. It's like mm-hmm. when, when people have, um, have violated the social contract in these really horrible ways, um, how do you rehabilitate people like that? Right. I mean, addiction, I think, is a somewhat different issue. And I can speak a bit to that because I've been actually in, on both sides of that coin. Um, and one thing I would say is that, uh, you know, you're never you're never going to get anybody out um, out of their addiction un- unless you're able to empower them to some degree. Um, now, of course, you can't just, you know, give them complete license. But um uh, you know, I had some very serious, uh, drug problems, you know, many years ago in my life. And, uh, I, I eventually, you know, I was able to get out of it because, um, 
of, of a determination. It was partly a determination on my part, but also a feeling of like, okay, I can, I can do this. And you take it a little bit, a, a little step at a time, but you need to go like, when you make, make that little bit of progress, that's a good thing. And that has to be affirmed. And maybe this, maybe this could provide some insight into, you know, dealing with um, the, the, the Trumpists and, and uh, get, you know, easing people out of a cult um, because you have to actually provide a bit of encouragement and in sort of when they take a step in the right direction, that there is actually, ah, that's great. Now, you, now, see, you can do it. You can take the next step. Um, so there might be some lessons uh, for us in that that can be applied to the, uh, this different situation. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, there's there's a book Neil Stevenson came out with uh, his his last novel, Fall, uh, came out in 2019. Mm-hmm. It's an in- incredibly dark dystopian uh, novel, and I, I, it's by far his darkest novel, I think. Uh, but he it's set in the a couple of decades from now in the United States, and it's sort of like he takes everything that's happening now with like fake fake news and social media and red states and and Trumpist, and he sort of extends these trend lines, and basically the United States has collapsed uh, into um, there's basically all this place that is now kind of the red states. They have become something called Ameristan, <laughs> and Ameristan. Uh, they have like third world level uh, kind of life expectancy. Uh, nobody has any teeth. It's like it's all of its infrastructure is incredibly crumbled. Uh, hardly anybody knows how to read anymore. Like it's it's horrible. And then meanwhile, along the coasts, there's these like incredibly super technological uh, city states. But they're they're they've got like protection around them from the Ameristanis and uh, gated and, <laughs> yeah like entire it's it's really really freaky but um, when they I, I kept thinking of uh, Neil Stevenson's fall when I was reading your piece because um, when people from um, from the United States that kind of partners <laughs> kind of still mm-hmm. where people can you know, very technologically advanced when they go into Ameristan, they are prepared in all sorts of different ways. Like, and uh, so, like, uh, just this one passage I wanted to, to read you. So, I uh, said, This wasn't Princeton, this was Ameristan, Facebooked to the molecular level. One of their teachers at Princeton had gone so far as to print up a wallet card for people to keep in front of them during conversations like this one. One side of the card was solid red with no words or images and was meant to be displayed outward as a nonverbal signal that you disagreed and that you weren't going to engage or be drawn into a fake argument. The other side facing the user was a list of little reminders as to what was really going on in this conversation. One, speech is aggression. Two, every utterance has a winner and a loser. Three. Curiosity is feigned. Four, lying is performative. Five, stupidity is power. <laughs> it's it's mm-hmm. really creepy, but it's it's sort of exactly saying uh, that they teach them that when you're dealing, when you're interacting with these people, 
do not engage. It's, it's, they're pretending, they're pretending to have a real conversation with you. Yeah. Uh, they're not listening. They're not using any standards of evidence or fact or logic. Yes. Yeah. And that's something I, I bring up as well, because they, you know, I have to really, really reinforce that um, most of them are not going to engage with you in good faith. Um, and so that's very important to remember, um, you know, and perhaps they are, <clears throat> they might believe themselves, but um, that's why, you know, you have to be careful about interacting with trolls um, because they're not, you know, you're, it's not going to be a fair exchange. Um, and so you have to be careful, uh, you know, when engaging with people because they're not going to play fair. Um, they're going to be, you know, playing a game in, in some ways that you might not even know the rules of. So uh, that's why, you know, another reason why we need to be cautious and, uh, and so forth. How do you, this is something that's always been a mystery to me in social media land. How do you know if somebody's a troll or how do you differentiate between a troll and somebody who is just, you know, asking difficult questions? It's sometimes very, very difficult to distinguish. Um, In my own experience, because I've I've sometimes made a misjudgment where I assume someone was a troll and then realize like, oh, actually they're, they're genuinely, um, you know, asking this question. And then I would cha- I'd change my tone and my tack and, um, and it actually became a rather, you know, calm conversation. And then, it, and then sometimes, you know, I started out thinking someone was, you know, uh, genuine and I started to interact with them. And then, you know, uh, certain phrases dropped um, that are red flags that, you know, I, I understand, uh, okay, this is the troll. Um, so it's important to recognize that kind of thing. I mean, I had a weird exchange with somebody's like some, a friend's, uh, a friend of a family, a family friend of a friend basically who, and I was commenting on his thread and then this woman, uh, chimed in and, um, you know, on the, superficially it it seemed like she was being very reasonable and um you know uh but there were certain things that would drop and she would have a drop in a phrase like the great awakening with each word capitalized at the beginning and so i immediately was like no i'm not going to be nice to this person i am going to treat this person with contempt and in fact i i specifically told her that i was doing that uh, do you mean do you mean the great the great awakening awakening like because the great awakening refers to a, a period of massive religious revival in the 18th century. I don't think she knew anything about that. I think she was a QAnon and that's a QAnon oh. code phrase. Oh, wow. So, so I immediately I knew I was, I was dealing with a QAnon person. Okay. Um, and, and then I was like, okay, this, you know, I am not going to, you know, uh, the, the, I, I'm going to just shut the conversation down and treat her with contempt. And um, thankfully she took the hint <laughs> and went away. Um, so, you know, it's also just about knowing uh, uh, what clues to look for. Yeah. I actually, I had a, there's a, a guy I've known for years, really good guy. Um, you know, just t- totally solid guy in every mm-hmm. respect. Um, 
And he just, I'm not exactly sure when it happened, but he has fallen right down into the Q hole, the QAnon right. hole. And he's, and he, um, at one point, he basically, we, we got together and we, um, it's just so crazy backstory. But anyway, we got together and this is before they locked everything down. And, um, and we just, we talked for a couple of hours and it was, I was, I was actually shaken up when mm. I got home. Like my wife was like, what's up? And I was like, I was like, kind of like, cause I almost got a contact high, like a contact crazy mm. high. But <laughs> yes, like, because, because this is somebody that I care about and that right. I, I respect and I've known for a long time. And, and he's telling me all this stuff about how there's like, you know, the, the Vatican and the build and they, they've got this child mm-hmm. like, and like yeah. just totally, totally, totally wacky. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, so in a situation like that, he's not a troll when he's saying stuff like that. Uh-huh. He legit believes it, which but is it, really creepy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in, I mean, in, in practice, is there really a difference? Um, you know, that's that's what I have to wonder, um, because even if somebody is sincerely believing it, they you, the, there's there's nothing you, you you're not going to be able to get any interaction level you know above the level of troll somebody getting trolled. So you have to really be careful with that kind of stuff. Um, and and QAnon is just so horrible and insidious. And I. I my theory is part, some of its strengths are that it's actually built on uh, like, it's a sort of new phenomenon, but what it, it's a sort of grab bag of a lot of much older conspiracy theories and racist tropes. Um, so the whole, you know, uh, killing and eating the babies, that's, that's a very, very old um, racist trope. It's called the blood libel. It's sure. been used against uh, the Jews um, for centuries um, but it's just been like now it's given this sort of new high tech spin because they're extracting the adrenochrome from the babies. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you know, they're just putting some new angles on a lot of re- kind of hoary old things. Um, so I see right through it. But I guess if, you know, if, if you're not al- if you didn't already know about the blood libel and about some of these other, you know, the, there's so many conspiracy theories about the Vatican. They go back, you know decades, centuries even, probably. So, you know, maybe that's helped inure me against QAnon's pull is that, you know, I I see right through it. I'm like, oh yeah, that's the, you know, I remember, you know, that whole thing about the um, uh, the Jesuits and whatnot. Uh, sure, yeah. Um, so I, I'm not really sure kind of the best way to deal with it, but one thing that I did, you know, as I said in my, in my post, um, it, in a lot of these situations, we, most of us are just not actually equipped to engage with and, and help in any way, these people, because it actually does require very, very specialized um, skills and techniques that a cult deprogrammer would know. And I certainly don't really know, know that stuff. So that's why I tend to not uh, even try. Uh, because you know, I know that if you if you don't know what you're doing, you know you could just make things worse. Um, yeah, no, I, I definitely I definitely see the the wisdom in that uh, just you know on its face because I remember my mom was always like 
real activist when I was growing up and she was very passionate for a lot of progressive causes. And one of the things she, she just told me lots of times is she said, you know, one of the biggest mistakes that, uh, that people who feel strongly about anything, you know, like whatever their religion, their political position, veganism, you know, whatever it is. Um, one of the biggest mistakes people make is they waste all of their time arguing with people who have their minds made up mm-hmm. on that issue. You know, they're, they're, so she, and she said, you know, usually on most issues, there's, you know, maybe like uh, 20% that feel strongly uh, for it, you know, maybe 20% strongly against it. And then there's this big chunk in the middle of like 60% of people who could go either way and they're not really sure. And she said, you know, if you want to change the world, if you want to move society's needle in one direction or the other, uh, don't waste your time on the the people yeah. who are uh, – spend all your time on the 60% of people yes. who aren't sure yet and try and sort of um, – Try and talk to them because they're going to be open because they're yeah. not really they're not really committed very strongly one way or the other, and that's where you can actually make a lot of uh, yeah. And that know, is don't, yeah. And she said, you know, so and I remember her talking to her after kind of social media became a thing, and she said, oh yeah, social media has just ramped up this problem so uh-huh. much. Yeah, so most of the time it's like people who are super committed on one side arguing with people who are super committed on the other and it's really kind of a waste of time for both mm-hmm. of them like they would be they would be much wiser to sort of copy uh you know like the jesuits or the or, or the like or the mormons or something like you know, right. don't keep don't keep ringing a doorbell that got slammed in your face go to the next place you know and so much of it, so no i i think that's uh, you're absolutely right that, you know, why waste your time with somebody who's convinced? I guess what worries me is that this is so big. You know, I wonder if this yeah. is like, you know, if, if like letting those, those people go, maybe, maybe it's, maybe there's too many of them. Yeah. I, you know, I, I really have no idea what to expect, but uh, these things do ebb and flow. Uh, I mean, uh, so, you know, you know, with the, like, say, 9-11 truthers, and, um, you know, I've actually interacted with people a lot on, on this who are kind of, you know, on the, uh, in my progressive circles on the left, because, you know, it sort of fits in with the narrative that, um, you know, uh, evil George W. Bush, you know, um, was behind it. <laughs> Uh, the, uh, you know, the Twin Towers or something like that. And of course, it's all nonsense. Um, And it's still there, but I don't think, I I think it's kind of lost ground uh, over the past um, 18 years. Um, So I'm not, you know, I'm not so worried about that. It, it grew for a while and then it's kind of stagnated and it's sort of, you know, there's little ebbs and flows, but um, I think it has dissipated over time and I expect QAnon will be too. Um, But, you know, it, it, it is a very disturbing thing and I'll, I'll warn you because I've made, make made these predictions about 2021. Uh, We're, we're going to see an unholy kind of confluence of, um, anti-vaxxers uh, with white, white supremacists and QAnon and holistic health p- 
people, like the wellness people, vegans and stuff, they're already kind of um, sort of intertwining. Um, and we're seeing that in, there have been some big rallies in, in Germany uh, where there's a, a, you know, one of the prominent people involved is a guy who's sort of like a well-known author of vegan cookbooks, uh, who also is a white supremacist and an anti-vaxxer and is leading marches in Germany to protest against um, pandemic lockdown measures and stuff like that. So there's going to be some strange, like unexpected bedfellows um, that we're going to see over the next year or so. And it's, it's not going to be pretty. Yeah, I think you're 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 a hundred percent right, and I don't I don't need a crystal ball to know you're right because, <laughs> like you say, we're already seeing it. There's yeah. been protests in uh, in Montreal, um, which totally weird. Yeah. Like these big protests, and they're and you look at the signs, and the signs are this crazy mix of anti anti um, sort of mask anti kind of. Mm-hmm. Uh, lockdown and also kind of anti-Semitic mm-hmm. and, and vegan stuff yeah. like all and anti-globalization mm-hmm. and like all kind of exactly like you say, this really weird mix of people. And yeah, that is really odd. I mean, you know, you, you sort of see it in the Trump movement, right? Like mm-hmm. Trump is super, has a lot of support from the anti-vax people yeah. from a, yeah, it is. What do you think is going on there? Yeah, I'm, I'm a little worried. Well, I'm kind of, I mean, hopefully it'll help that he's been deplatformed to some degree. But um, one thing I was kind of worried about is that um, he's going to be pro-vaccine, um, you know, as long as he's able to take credit for the vaccine. But then when, you know, he's out of office and he's not no longer able to take credit for it, might he suddenly shift over into uh, anti-vax territory. And then of course, like that's going to be a disaster. Like we'll never escape this pandemic because there'll be too many people who refuse to get vaccinated. Um, and I actually, you know, sort of as a joke, but I kind of am quite serious about it. I put my, I made a post last year about, um, you know, really what we need to do is just make guns that, uh, fire vaccine darts. (laughs) So just like, you know, you don't want to get vaccinated. That's fine. We'll take care of that and just shoot people with the vaccine. And we might, who knows, that, that might actually be a thing. Yeah, I'm if sure I was an liber- engineer, liber- I'd get the I'm patent. I'm sure the it. libertarians will libertarians yeah. will love you for that. Idea. Yes. Well, you can probably guess just how much I care about what they think. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, I, when I was, um, I don't know what it's like in Ontario, but I know uh, in the States, they're having a lot of problems. And then here in Quebec, in a lot of the old folks' homes where we have the biggest um, amount of people um, infected with COVID-19 and with the coronavirus and dying of COVID-19, there's the people who work in them, the nurses, in some of them, it's as much as 40% of them have said that they don't want to get the vaccine. Yeah. Right. And it's um, when I had uh, Nicholas Christakis uh, from Yale, who's a, a doctor and a sociologist and, he has wrote like the definitive book um, so far on the coronavirus. It's called uh, Apollo's Arrow just came out Mm -hmm. and we had him on the podcast to talk about the book. And um, he, he said, you know, when I asked him about this problem, he said, well, if you crunch the numbers um, right now, the number of people who are either anti-vax or vaccine resistant, if you crunch the numbers, it's, 
comes up to at most 20% of the population. And um, right now, in order to achieve herd immunity, uh, we can get to herd humidity, uh, immunity without them. Uh, but now with this new strain, with this mm-hmm. new strain that was first identified in the UK and right. now we know is pretty much everywhere, um, this new strain is much more um, it's much more sort of uh, virulent and it doesn't much more contagious. And so this changes all the numbers, right? Uh-huh. So I sent him, I sent him a message uh, right away when I heard about this. And I was like, so Nicholas, um, <laughs> dude, <laughs> um, does this change that calculation? And he wrote back this message and he's like, oh, yes, uh-huh. it really does. Yeah. Because now, now we need, uh, we need a higher percentage because it depends, you know, the, the R naught and how many, the percentage of the population you need to get herd immunity depends on a couple of factors. But the number one factor is how contagious is it? So yeah. if it's something like, uh, like the measles, which is crazy, crazy uh, contagious, you need to have, you know, about 95% of the population mm-hmm. has to either been vaccinated or had it uh, to yeah. get herd immunity. Uh, he said, now the numbers have changed. And so he said, the we are potentially uh, in some very dangerous territory. Yeah, because yeah. If, if the number of anti-vax people uh, continues to rise as rapidly as it's been rising for the last 18 months, if it continues to go up the way it is, um, we're if we're not there already, we very soon will be in a situation mm-hmm. where we can't get to herd immunity without them. And then that's just going to be a nightmare. Yes. That means like the thing will just keep, we'll be stuck with this shit for like, you know, years. Oh yeah. And now, so this will be a parallel to what I was saying in my post about the Trump supporters. And it's, I'm absolutely sure this is going to enrage a number of listeners. And of course I don't care, but uh, you know, I actually believe it. it should be mandatory. And I think that we've, you know, societally has, we've made a mistake uh, in recent decades in in actually um, allowing people to opt out. And we've set a precedent where it's now a kind of like matter of personal choice, which is a deep misunderstanding of, of the function of, of vaccines. So, you know, when I was a kid, it was re- really uncontroversial. It was just kind of like, okay, today's the day we get our shots. Um, and we all understood. And we you know, we kind of were aware of like, like we knew people that had actually had the measles and stuff. So it was like, it was a good thing that we were actually like, um, you know, vanquishing these deadly diseases. Uh, so by, you know, uh, it, it was a very different context, but I, I actually feel like once again, we've done too much coddling. We've coddled uh, people, you know, to, you know, to apply their, you know, personal beliefs or whatever about vaccines, which, you know, is a, a kind of oxymoron, right? Um, it's, it has nothing to do with personal beliefs or, or anything like that. It's, it's just a medical thing. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I would, I would actually, I mean, I, I think it's politically now, you know, unfortunately, because of all that coddling, it is politically untenable to even suggest uh, making it mandatory, uh, which is why, you know, in an effort, you know, in a, I'm being a very generous humanitarian person here to suggest that actually we may need to go with the um, vaccine dart guns. <laughs> well, I would, I, definitely, actually, yeah. I would definitely not be into that. But for me, it's, it's oh, basically... Why not? 
for me, it's a domain specific thing. Like I, I'm against, I, I'm totally against um, kind of mandatory drug testing of employees, mm-hmm. unless you're flying the plane. Yeah. Or, or well, driving the here's bus, the thing. Right? We're we're and all I, flying the plane when it comes yeah, but to. I, but but for me, the, the analysis like goes for uh, you know I, I'm against mandatory criminal background checks for all employees unless you're working in a daycare right with kids and stuff like that. Yeah, but and I'm, but, I'm, I'm I'm against I'm against mandatory. With although, with, the con- with deadly contagious get... diseases, there is no unless though. Like it's it's all or nothing, right? Um, and there's no, you know, it's not like, you know, oh, well, we we will only need to vaccinate, you know, this section of the population. It just doesn't work that way. You know, you, well, you need- if it, I, I'm, I'm totally down with like, for instance, when I was, uh, you know, one of my really good friends, um, well, I don't say that on the air, but, uh, <laughs> but, um, the, I think if you're working in an old folks home, if you're working mm-hmm. with vulnerable populations, mm-hmm. um, it should absolutely uh, not be optional. I, yeah. I cannot believe that they're letting them opt out of this. It should be like drug testing airline airline pilots. It's just like, okay, if you don't want to get this, that's your right. I'm not going to invade your body. I'm definitely not going to shoot you with a dart, but mm-hmm. you, you get another job. Like if, if you don't well, want to get this and I think just do it and of, don't tell them that like, don't. <laughs> no, I don't, I don't like the precedent of that, but mm-hmm. I do think if you're, if you are, if you are kind of interacting with other people, especially vulnerable populations, you absolutely uh, you should show proof of vaccination or proof that you you know at the very least that you had it and you you got over it. Mm-hmm. Um, you should have to show some kind of proof like that to to get in the door. And I, I'm totally fine with that. But if somebody wants to, um, you know, for whatever reason. They, you know, they really, really afraid of like, I say, and they want to just sort of stay in their apartment and hang out by themselves and not go out and not participate in society. Fine. But that's not, uh, yeah, but, but that's not what anti-vaxxers do, right? They want the personal freedom to go out and infect everyone. Right. And that's not something they have the right to do. Yeah. Well, I guess, I, I don't know. I've, um. I think I've pretty much scared off most of those people, uh, especially after having Nicholas Christakis on the podcast. Right. <laughs> you know, he just like, yeah, that, that pretty much, just, that's a flare. Uh, but, right. uh, but to the extent to which I have talked to people who are vaccine hesitant or mm-hmm. anti-vax, it seems to be a really mixed bag. Like there's a lot of them that say, um, you know, I'm not, I don't trust these things. I think they were done too fast and, I, there have been problems with vaccines in the past and I, you know, but I'm willing, but they, you know, a lot of them have told me I'm totally willing to take a hit for that. If people don't want me to, uh, you know, when things open up a little bit more, if people say you've got to show a vaccination uh, stamp in order to get into the mall or to get into the movie theater, um, I'm totally fine with like not getting into those places. If that's, mm. if that's the problem, like, I feel like, you know, uh, they, they feel sure. like that's a fair trade off. Now there are this sort of like, fuck yeah, kind of people who are just like, <laughs> yeah, mm. I just want to be able to, you know, do that anyway. Right. Um, I don't know. But I think those people are just going to go the way of, you know, the Dennis Leary types are like, yeah, I'm just going to smoke, you know, anyway. 
even though smoking's I, been banned, you know? Yeah, but the problem is it's it's not just them. It's it affects all of us, right? So where you know where does um, you know personal freedom versus uh, societal responsibility? You know where where is that line? Where should that line be drawn? And um, I definitely you know, I used to be much more libertarian when I was with darts. <laughs> uh, yeah, but that, what, that was the, that was pretty clearly that, on the wrong side for me. You think? <laughs> shooting people with darts yeah yes. yeah that would be that would be over the line for me for sure all right i mean that that would be in the same category for me as like forced sterilizations you know like uh, yeah. yeah but forced sterilization you're actually harming somebody vaccinating them is not <laughs> right and if that you know, look if yeah. i do it to say if they want to sue me uh go ahead but you know what they, they can't unvaccinate themselves that's the deed is done <laughs> and so I, I feel there's a, there's a sort of elegant simplicity to it that, um, you know, appeals to me. And, um, you know, maybe I'm, <laughs> uh, maybe it's wrong. I don't know. But, but you know what? I, not to refuse to get vaccinated and endanger other people's lives is much more clearly wrong in my view. Yeah. Well, I think, I think, um, Regardless of of what our our feelings about this are, and our mm. I think if um, I mean I'm not 100 percent serious about it, but it's sort of <laughs> well, I can tell you're sort of yeah. tongue in cheek when yeah. you're saying it. But and the I think if with what Christakis said about uh, what's happened with the new, the new mutation mm. of the virus, if something like that happens again, mm. um, and it becomes you know let's say even more contagious, so mm. we kind of go to a then you know regardless of how people feel about this we may get into a situation where you know everybody has to get it (laughs) you know in the same way that like everybody has to get a driver's license to go on the road yeah everybody has to get a passport to cross the border it's it's not it's not unreasonable we have these regulations that we you know it, it it's kind of ridiculous that we've allowed the exception on something like this um, while, you know, we, we do have those requirements for so many other less, less dangerous things. Um, so, you know, but the problem is that it's going to be much, now the, the, it's going to be a much bigger obstacle to implement something like that because we've sort of allowed for so long, um, this idea of like it being a personal choice. Um, so there's going to be much more, you know, and then you might see, uh, armed, you know, people might be storming the hospitals then, um, as a result. So completely wacky. I, it's so wacky. I mean, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. I, I feel mm-hmm. like I, I definitely want to, uh, get you on the podcast again. Sure. I, this was, this was absolutely fascinating. I think, um, you know, as I said, your, your piece is fantastic. I encourage all of our listeners to, go and read it. And um, yeah, I I can't wait to see uh, what you write in the future. So thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you very much. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye.